I give you greetings in Jesus' name this morning. I'm glad to see that you're here on this cold winter morning. I'm delighted to know that you're here and that you uh, counted it worthy to brave the elements to come and spend some time. It's a privilege for us this morning to be gathered together and to spend some time worshiping together. And I count it a privilege to stand before you and to teach from or to read to you and invite the Holy Spirit to teach us from God's precious word. Last week we began a uh, started going through the book of 2 Thessalonians, so you can open your Bibles this morning to 2 Thessalonians, and we're going to uh, read the next uh, section from where we started last week. We read the first four verses. We're going to read verses 5 through 10 this morning. Again, just a reminder to you, we have a handout. I put a handout on the back side of your bulletin. If you care to follow along and take notes, if you care just to uh, listen or to uh, think through whatever helps you best pay attention, that's what I'm aiming for, and best internalize what God's Word says. Follow along now carefully as we read 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. Paul writes this to the, second Thessalonians, uh, to the Thessalonians in his second letter. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Let's pause and ask the Lord for his blessing on his word. Lord Jesus, thank you so much. Thank you that words that uh, were inspired by your Holy Spirit, God, have been written down and have been preserved for us that we can look at this morning. Thank you that those words mean something, that they have import, that they, they carry a weight, and that they also carry with them the ability to reshape how we think, to remind us of things, to correct us of things. Lord, we want to be in a position this morning, a posture this morning. We want to be in a place this morning where our heart and our mind is humble before you, where our posture is one as if we were bowed before you, God, where we are in a place where we look to you and say, it is my thinking that has to be shaped to your ways, God. It is my habits. It is my attitudes. It is my heart and soul and my brain that must find subjection, must be in subjection, must find its value, worth, and the right way of thinking in you and under you. So this morning, we approach you that way, God. Thank you that you will teach us by your Holy Spirit. Thank you that your word is living and active and can, can, can address us where we are at. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So I told you last week as we introduced 2 Thessalonians that Paul did write the letter to give some clarification of some things he wrote in his first letter. He wrote that there were some things that he wanted to make sure they understood for perhaps they were taking out of context or they were worried about some things. But before they got there, he said, I want to encourage you 
And these words came last week, and I hopefully they were an encouragement to you as well. I want to encourage you. We, I see that your faith is growing abundantly. That seed of faith that was planted is growing abundantly inside of you. I see that happening, and Paul said, I think you should know that I see that happening. And I reflected that to you as well, that I see those, that growth happening here. And he said that the love of every one of you is increasing. And he coupled that with the reality that you are being steadfast and patient in the midst of some pressure, some affliction, some things that are pushing in around you. He said, I see that you're being steadfast and your faith is holding strong, which is why he opens up today's text with the words from verse 5. This is evidence. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. And you should ask yourself, well, what is evidence? What is he talking about? What does that mean? This is evidence of the righteous judgment. I entitled my message today, Righteous Judgment, because that's where we're going to spend most of our time. But we have to, before we get there, recognize or, or, or deal with the fact that he's saying, this is evidence. Well, what's evidence? I would submit to you that he's pointing back to the things he just encouraged them in. He said, I look at you and I see a faith that's growing. I look at you and I see love that's increasing for one another. I look at you and I see steadfastness and a, a deep abiding, persevering faith in the midst of affliction. And when you can do those kind of things, when human beings withstand pressure and affliction and persecution, and in fact, instead of shrinking away from God in those times, they grow closer to God and the gospel flourishes, the gospel takes root and grows. When that happens, that is evidence of God's righteous judgment. He uses the same argument in Philippians. He uses the same line of thinking. He says, you know that when you see the opposite happening of what you would expect logically to happen according to human mind, you know that God is at work. By the way, the pages of history attest to this kind of thinking. Look at every evil regime throughout the history of mankind, of which there are many, and there are more coming. There's some here today, there's more coming. But look at every evil regime that has taken upon itself the mandate or the, 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 the calling to eradicate Christianity, to stamp out this Jesus thing that's going on. Look at what happens when it, when it takes place. What happens? You tell me, what happens? You, with a small group here, I want to make sure you track. What happens when, when, when the enemy tries to, through human beings, through evil regimes, to stamp out Christianity? What happens? It flourishes right? Somehow in the midst of awful things happening. By the way, real people are dying and paying with their blood. It's not like we skate through it and it's like no one gets touched. Real people are dying and their blood is flowing red like our blood does when we're persecuted, when we're killed for our faith. But somehow in the midst of that, instead of it actually squashing it, we find this curious thing happening where it begins to grow and flourish and suddenly more comes out of and the more they're trying to stamp down, the more they're trying to get rid of it, the more it takes root and grows. Some might have come to the unfortunate conclusion that the reason, some of the reasons our faith is dwindling in the U.S. is because we're not having that kind of pressure. Which isn't a fun thing to acknowledge, right? Because we don't like pressure. We don't like affliction. We don't like persecution. We don't like those kind of things happening. But the statement could be made. I digress when I say those things, so I won't. In this context, Paul says, when you flourish, when the, when the gospel flourishes in the face of persecution is a sign of God's righteous judgment. And then he says, let me encourage you with this righteous judgment. Last week, we walked through our text using three 
pairs of words that we kind of stood up next to each other and said, this is what's, what's going to guide us through the text. We're going to do the same today. We have four sets of pairs, this time instead of three, so we better jump in. But we're going to see Paul make, it's not really a circle, but in my mind, he makes a big circle. He's still encouraging him, by the way. So he begins with some very encouraging words, some, some words of, of exhortation to them of saying, this is what I see happening. This is evidence of God's righteousness, that you're counted worthy of God's kingdom. And he says good things, and he says, but I have to remind you of some very negative things. And he comes around and shares some things that are very not fun for us to hear, but they're good reminders for us. They're good exhortations to us in their own right. And he's going to come back all the way at the end with words of affirmation and encouragement again. So let's jump in and let's look at these pairs of words. The first two pairs, or first pair, not two pairs, first pair, first two words I want to point out are these words, repay and relief. Repay and relief. This is what God's righteous judgment looks like. This is, of course, taken from verses 6 and the first part of verse 7. God considers it just. Listen to these words. God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted. And of course, as Paul often does, he includes himself in that, as well as to us when he says that. But let's focus on these, this phrase right here. To repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you excuse me, who are being afflicted. This, my friends, is one of the basic principles that are present all the way throughout Scripture. You reap what you sow. Right? God is just. God does not forget the good you've done. God does not forget the evil you've done. This was the psalmist's cry. If you read a couple of psalms, the psalmist's cry, God, it doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem, it, these people are doing evil things and it, they just flourish and they're just having all kinds of good things. And here I'm trying to do right with by you and my life is a struggle. It doesn't seem fair. And then he's reminded of what God is like. He's reminded of judgment. He's reminded of the end of all things. But here it is. Paul again lays it out for them. He says, listen, your steadfast faith that's flourishing in the midst of affliction, I want to bolster that. I want to help you have your hands lifted up and your, your knees strengthened as you walk through this, this thing called life, being faithful to Jesus. For you should know that God considers it just to repay those who are afflicting you with affliction and to grant relief to you who are being afflicted. Those are sweet words. Those are words like a cool drink of water on a hot summer day. Friends, when pressure and affliction comes, relief will come sometime. God considers it just to be that way. Now, one thing that's very true of, I think, pretty much every person I've ever met in my life, myself included, we have very strong senses of fairness instilled in us, right? Of what's fair and right. I would tell you that that's there because we're created in the image of God and God has righteous judgment. So we understand when things seem unfair. Now the reality is, just like with everything else in our life, sin has twisted what God put in us to be good. So we have this sense of fairness inside of us, but the problem is it often gets twisted about with a very selfish bent, right? Like we notice when things aren't unfair to us. We notice when we don't get what's coming to our due. We don't like it when we don't get what we want out of something. So sometimes when we cry unfair, it's us just being selfish, right? But the reality is, without a doubt, brothers and sisters, here, the reality is that the enemy of our souls does bring tremendous pressure and affliction and pursues us all throughout our life. He wants nothing but the destruction of our souls. 
So there is things that come that are not fair, if you want to put it that way, that need justice, if you want to put it that way, that God says, that's not how you do these things. But we have a need to expand our horizon, don't we? Because when things are unfair, we want immediate justice, don't we? We want things to be changed immediately. We want to be repaid immediately. It's why we have a whole court system clogged with people who want to get their just demands now. We have need to expand our horizon because God says very clearly, you should hear this this morning, God says very clearly that he considers it just. It is just to God. It is right to God. It is his righteous judgment that someday he will afflict those who have been doing the afflicting. And he will grant relief to those who have been afflicted. But when will that happen? Now, God can do it anytime he wants to, right? And he does. He does it all the time. He does it all the time in our lives in small ways. But make no mistake, and it leads into what a lot of the rest of Second Thessalonians is going to be about. But make no mistake, Paul's eye is to say, I'm not actually here to encourage you necessarily about what's going to happen tomorrow. Or how God is going to grant you relief next week. Or next month. Or maybe even next year. Or maybe even while you're still alive. Because he says, this is going to ultimately happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed. When the Lord Jesus is revealed, then we will know with confidence. And again, I could take you, I could take you to dozens of verses from all of Scripture that support this kind of belief. That God doesn't make everything right, right now. But someday, when Jesus is revealed, it will be made right. This is the kernel of faith that we're to hang on to, by the way. This is the thread. This is the anchor we have to say that Jesus came to accomplish salvation for us, and Jesus is coming again to secure and make that salvation complete. And when that happens, he will repay those with affliction who have been afflicting you, and he will grant relief to those who have been afflicted. Look at the, I love the prepositions that Paul tacks on to this phrase. This phrase is simply this. God is going to do this when the Lord Jesus is revealed at his apocalypsis, his revelation. That's what that word means, at Jesus' revelation. But then he says he's going to be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Just adds depth and adds um, strength and adds color to the picture, doesn't it? He's going to be coming from heaven. He's going to be coming with his mighty angels, with a powerful force. He's going to be coming in flaming fire. You know, through scripture we read things like there's a bush that lights on fire and Moses walks up to it and it, doesn't be, it is not consumed, right? Because the Lord's presence is there. We read things like after the Exodus, there's a pillar of fire. We read things like the fire that came down in the Shekinah glory of God in the temple and how, everyone's, how Moses went on the mountain and there was fire and rumbling and people couldn't come. We read of those kind of things all the time. It's interesting. Paul says, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Well, now we're moving past the words of encouragement because he has some words to say about, you know that there's repayment coming for those who are afflict, doing the afflicting. You know there's relief coming for those who are being afflicted. But what does he have in mind? What does that look like? When Jesus comes, who is that for? Who is going to be, as he says here, who is going to have vengeance inflicted upon them? That's in verse, uh, verse uh, 8. 
Who's going to have vengeance inflicted upon? Whom is God going to repay? And for that, I want to use these two, these two words here. Know and obey. Know and obey. But actually, if you read the verse, it's not in the positive, is it? He's not saying he's going to grant relief to those who know and obey. He says he's going to repay those. He's going to inflict vengeance on those. He takes the negative approach, and he says those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of Jesus, of our Lord Jesus. Those who do not know God, those who do not obey the gospel. He now moves into a very serious subject. I don't know how, how much we spend time thinking or contemplating on these things. And I'm not saying our entire existence should be taken by this because there's so much good news we need to be aware of. But I do think it's good for us to spend some time thinking through what Paul is trying to say here. There's exhortation in the midst of these words, right? Because he's saying God who considers it just to repay with affliction those who've been afflicting people and grant relief to those who have been afflicted, he will do that when the Lord Jesus is revealed and it will be to those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These themes, knowing God, acknowledging God, recognizing God for who he is, obedience to obey the gospel. That word actually is hupa akuo, which is two words put together. Hupo means to be under, akuo means to hear or listen. So to hear under is what that phrase means. To hear under, to submit, to, to take seriously, to, to bow the knee to is really what it means, the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Now, remember, this is one of the earliest letters Paul wrote. Just a couple of years after this letter was written, Paul was going to endeavor in what is going to, be, what is going to turn out to, I think, be one of his greatest works of instruction that I think is going to be all about this very verse here, this very theme he's presenting here. It's the book of Romans, the letter to the Romans, goes in detail fleshing out what happens here, that God considers it just to repay those with affliction who have been afflicting and to grant relief to those who need the, need the relief. And he's going to do that when Jesus is revealed. And he begins to talk about the righteous judgment of God upon those who don't know God and those who don't obey the gospel. But he also in that letter talks about then the grace or the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ, what God has done through Jesus to make, a, uh, make, it, make something possible for people to not have to suffer this vindictive vengeance that he's talking about here. So the letter of Romans, I think, is fleshing out a lot of what our text is dealing with today. The good news and the bad news. The gospel and the reality of God's just right, righteous judgment upon people who don't know him and don't obey him. For example, we could read a lot of the book of Romans, but maybe this morning it would just be, just to, just to show you these themes here, it's worth our time to take a quick glance at Romans chapter 1. Again, I could read the entire book of Romans this morning, but that probably wouldn't be what you want me to do. But let me read these verses for you. Here are the themes that Paul is starting to dip his toe into in 2 Thessalonians that he's going to flesh out in Romans he begins this way in Romans chapter 1, not the very first verses I'm going to read in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. That sounds very familiar to what he just, we just, we just covered verses in 2 Thessalonians. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God, there's the knowing God, for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. 
And now that, that verse includes us, by the way, today. Not just the Romans back then or the people then. It includes us today. They are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, verse 24 says, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. We go on to read unfortunate, ugly things. For this reason, God gave them to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Verse 28 goes on. And since they did not see it fit to acknowledge God, there's the knowing God. That's right there in that root, acknowledge to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of, now listen to these words, because that's much bigger than the ugly things I just read in verse 26 and 27 that we often jump to. Verse 29, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but get approval to those, give approval to those who practice them. I'll stop there. And I'm so grateful this morning, brothers and sisters. I'm so grateful that Romans chapter 1 is not the end of Romans. Right? Because it got really ugly really fast. And the ugliness is ugly because we know it's true. Because we see it inside of us. We see our flesh. we filled with this same kind of, we know about God, but we don't always do what he asks us to do. And when that is allowed, maybe not all of us, hopefully, by God's grace, not all of us, but many of us in this room know that when we allow that to go down the road long enough, we are given over to a mind that thinks some things that are pretty awful. And a body that does some things that are pretty evil. Am I right? And the problem is, we think it makes sense. We think it sounds right. I'm so grateful that Romans goes on. And I could read to you chapter 3. God's righteousness upheld. Chapter 4 justified by faith. Chapter 5, peace with God through faith. Chapter 6, dead to sin, alive to God. Slaves to righteousness, released from the law, life in the spirit, heirs with Christ. God's choice about these things, what God is doing through Israel and now through the Jewish people, his grace and how to live in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm so grateful I can read words like, the time is coming short, but we are not like people of darkness. We're people in day, and we can put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh and gratify the desires of our sinful nature. Praise God I can read those verses to you. This brings us back to 2 Thessalonians because it brings us back to the reality that when we have this seed of faith that has grown and we are growing in the midst of affliction, it's a sign that God is going to repay evil and he's going to grant relief to those who are right, who have trusted in him, 
who know him and obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Can I say one quick statement about this? I don't know where you stand on things like this, and I'll just make one quick statement about this that's not, I, anyway, it's a theological kind of statement. I hope you're okay with that, but it's a theological kind of statement. That last phrase caught my attention, those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And I began to think about, clearly this text is talking about suffering. It's talking about things that we call, the word is not used here, but we call the word hell, right? When Christ returns and the judgment that comes, heaven or hell. Clearly it's talking about hell. It's talking about the judgment that God is going to inflict upon those who have not uh, received the gospel of Jesus Christ. This phrase, obeying the gospel of the Lord Jesus, struck me again in the reality that I'm not so sure that we will be punished and spend time in hell, spend eternity in hell. I'm not so sure that we will do that for the sins that we've committed. Now, that may sound like a weird statement from your pastor to come, come out of his mouth. And maybe that causes your ears to open right now and be like, what is he talking about? I'm not so sure that we're going to spend eternity in hell for the sins that we've committed. Because I think it's pretty clear from Scripture that Jesus paid for all those sins. Like they're paid for. If I take the Bible at its word, I think it's clear that Jesus' sacrifice paid for all the sins of all of mankind. Yours, mine. The ones you've already committed, the ones you may be currently committing, and the ones you're still going to commit down the road you don't even know about yet. They're all paid for. They must be. They must be by the book of Romans I just referred to you. They must be. Otherwise, Jesus will have to come again. This is an interesting phrase because I think Paul is alluding to the fact that if you will spend eternity in judgment away from God and in hell, it will be because you have not received the gift that God has provided for you in Jesus Christ because you've rejected what Jesus did for you. Now, granted, when you do that, there's a lot of sinful behavior that comes out of your life. The question becomes what you do with Jesus, doesn't it? The question becomes, will you hear under? Will you consider and yield to the gospel, the good news of Jesus? Will you consider the fact that when I know who God is, I know that he is right and perfect and pure and holy, and I am not? Then I have a choice. Will I consider the fact that God sent Jesus to do for me what I could not do, to take my penalty, and my only choice is to yield to him and to submit to him and let him become Lord of my life? And if I don't do that, then I will spend an eternity suffering the consequence. You can talk with me later if you don't like how that came out or have questions about that. But I need to return to 2 Thessalonians. By the way, we're going to see these two words, know and obey, show up together in another one of Paul's writings, this time in one verse. It's a verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 where Paul addresses the battle we are engaged in, that that battle is won through spiritual uh, weapons and that there is victory in this battle. He uses both those same words, know and obey. You might know what this verse is. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. That's what the gospel of Jesus Christ is meant to do. The good news of Jesus Christ, the grace that God has enabled, has given to us, and the weapons of righteousness, the weapons of submission and holiness when we were hidden in Jesus Christ is meant to take every argument and lofty opinion. Where do those come from? Here, right? In your head. Things we think we know about God that are wrong. To tear those down, those fortresses, and take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. Well, let's move on. 
We've talked about repaying relief. We've talked about know and obey. I already alluded to this, but Paul is going to flesh out what kind of suffering are we talking about? What kind of punishment are we talking about for those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus? What kind of vengeance is being inflicted? You might find this surprising, although I'm guessing you probably have heard these kind of things before. But as Paul talks about it, he says, this is what I think it's about, that, that, that punishment that's, that's being inflicted upon those who do not know or do, don't obey, that punishment is framed in these two words, presence and glory. Presence and glory. Specifically, we find it in verse 9. We will spend, those people will spend eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. Again, you may have all kinds of pictures of what hell might be like. And I'm not telling you that they're wrong necessarily. I'm telling you from this text, Paul chose to say that if you do not know God, if you do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus, then God's just and righteous judgment on you is to be banished from the presence of the Lord and away from the glory of his might. That will truly be what hell is. To be separated forever from Jesus, from God, from the glory of his might. It leads me to ask a question whether we are truly aware of how much God's presence and the glory of his might are, are true here on this earth. I'm not sure we know, because I think we think it's pretty awful around here, right? We see a lot of devastating things. And somehow, if the Bible makes the case, if Paul is making the case that God's just judgment, his righteous judgment, is to be removed from that presence and from, the, from his glory completely, and that, that is somehow the worst thing that could ever happen to you, I'm not sure that we are aware of how much God's presence is still here, of how much God's glory is still present around us. Again, I think Paul would, would say that because I just read the verses to you from Romans chapter 1. He said, we can all know who God is by looking at, at around us and, and the glory of who he is. The pres his presence is still here. Now, not fully, but it's still here. I don't know that there's words that I can give us this morning that adequately describe the vacuum, the darkness, the, what the absence of the presence of the Lord is really like. Again, depending on what your life has been like, you may have had a few moments where you've walked down a path away from God and his presence has been removed from you and you might know some a bit of what that feels like. The hopelessness, the confusion, The absolute devastation, the darkness, the absolute encroaching darkness that you can't push back. But I suspect that even in that, those moments of our lives when we feel those kinds of things, I suspect we still have not even fully come to the place of what it's like to truly be away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. Perhaps it would do us well in response to this. Just one quick, perhaps it would do us well to do everything we can to be in the presence of the Lord, to move into the presence, to move towards the glory of God's might, to experience that, that we might taste and see the Lord is good and move into that. I want to finish, I want to go all the way around. Well, wait, before I do that, I want to just, I, want, I, want to, I should make my case here. I said that these words, I should, I should back them up with Scripture. We know from Scripture 
that the result of sin was to be banished from the presence of God, right? We know that in the Garden of Eden, the Bible is very clear in Genesis chapter 3 that God came and walked and talked with them. We also know that when sin came, that we read these words, that the Lord God sent Adam out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. We know just a chapter later, when Cain killed his brother Abel, and God came and brought judgment upon that, that it says that Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So we know that the result of sin is a removal from the presence of God. We also know from Scripture, by the way, that repentance, listen carefully, believer, that repentance is the doorway back to the presence of God. Did you know that? Sin is what separates us from the presence of God. Repentance is the doorway back to the presence of God. We know that because uh, the writer, because uh, Luke in, in Acts said this. He said, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Now in both of those cases, I would tell you that those were temporary uh, removals, temporary breaks in the presence, and, and I would say even repentance, temporary rejoining of the presence of God. Temporary because we're still in time. There is a finality that these verses speak of and a finality that the book of Revelation speaks of that gives it a different flavor, I think. These verses speak not of a temporary kind of nature, but it uses the word uh, aeons upon aeons, which is eternity upon eternity, or, or maybe I, should, I shouldn't put it that way because aeons actually means a measure of time. But it uses the phrase uh, aeons upon aeons, so time upon time or the only way that we as humans can say it, I think, time without ending. Like time beyond what we can see or beyond what we can fathom. Time without ending. And Revelation carries a little bit of that same finality. When you read through the book of Revelation, again, called Apocalypsis, the Apocalypse of Jesus Christ, the Revelation of Jesus Christ, we read these words in the final chapter. Revelation 22. When God has, when Jesus has reappeared, there's a judgment, there's God coming, his presence will now be with them, and we read these words, just little, little phrases stuck in there. Verse 3, no longer will there, uh, verse 3 of chapter 22, I should be clear about that, no longer will there be anything accursed, nothing accursed anymore, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. And verse 4 says, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. By the way, that phrase, they will see his face, is literally the same word as here, being removed from the presence of God. Because that's what the word presence means. It's in the face of enopion, in the face of God. You're removed from the face of God through sin. You're restored to the face of God through repentance. Again, those, I believe, are temporary measurements inside of time. This is referring to a finality of some time coming when the Lord Jesus is revealed and the judgment that's coming, the right and just judgment for those who do not know God or obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus is to be removed from the face of God for good. Away from the glory of his might for good. But let's not end this text or this sermon on a sour note. For we are sitting here today as those who have, I trust, have received the, the truth of faith, have received the testimony of what Jesus did, have received the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in our lives, which means that's not talking about us. We're going to bring the circle all the way back around because right on the heels of those horrifying words of being removed from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might, he doesn't even put a period there. He just continues the sentence. He says, when he comes on that day, for what? And I'm going to use the final pair of words, to be glorified and marveled at. 
Look at those words. To be glorified and marveled at. Let me just read the verse for you. When Jesus comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. Once again, I told you, I'm not sure what you have in mind about hell. I'm not sure what you think of what's going to happen there. All we know for sure from this text is that it talks about uh, being banished completely from the presence of God and his glory. I also don't know what you think about heaven. I don't know what's in your mind about what's going to happen when you're in heaven. And again, I'm not going to tell you right, wrong, or in between. But I can tell you from this text, it becomes clear that one of the primary things that will happen in heaven is that Jesus will be glorified. That he will be the center of attention. And in fact, that Jesus will be marveled at by those who have believed. So again, you may have in your mind, I don't know what you have in mind, walking streets of gold, playing harps, I hope you're not thinking that, but doing all kinds of fun things, re enjoying reunions, having all kinds of, I don't know what you're thinking about. And again, I'm not telling you right or wrong, but from this text, I can tell you that if you're going to be in heaven, if you're going to enjoy heaven, it will be because you will enjoy the presence of God. You will glorify Jesus. That is the scene, again, that's painted over and over again in the book of Revelation. There's God in the center, there's Jesus beside him, and there's just people around him all the time worshiping. Praise be to God. All glory and honor and power and majesty. Worthy is the Lamb who's been slain. All of those things, just echoing, peals of thunder, roars of water, all those things, myriads upon myriads of angels, men, and all creatures giving praise and glorifying God marveling at him do you think this is a serious question do you think you can marvel at Jesus for all of eternity do you think you can stand in awe and wonder of what Jesus has done for you for all of eternity that question should poke at us I think because if you don't think you can I'm not sure we have fully appreciated what Jesus has done for us I'm not sure we fully understand God's just and righteous judgment that's due to us that Jesus has stepped in and prevented us from having to suffer I'm not sure we fully received the gospel. Can I just put it that way? Readjust what you think you'll be doing in heaven, because I think you'll be spending a long time, actually no more time at all. Time will cease to exist, marveling at Jesus, marveling at the glory and beauty and wonder of who Jesus is, who God is, what he's done for you. Here's the question I want to end with. As you think about God's righteous judgment. As you think about Paul's words, having started with the encouragement that if you're being afflicted, if there's pressure coming, I can give you good news that God considers it just to repay those that are doing the afflicting and to grant relief to you. Relief is coming. It may not be now. It may not even be until you cross that Jordan, as, as the phrase of, of, the, of the old Negroes used to be. Cross the Jordan as you cross the threshold of death. It may not even be until then. But relief is coming as you're encouraged by those, but then reminded as Paul moved down that wheel around the circle, he said, but listen, know that God's judgment is coming. When he's repaying them, here's what we're talking about. We're talking about people who don't know God or refuse to obey to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the result of that punishment is an everlasting separation from the glory of God himself. And you come back around and you say, but Thankfully, if you've received the gospel, if you've believed, then that's not talking about you. Then you have to look forward to Jesus being revealed, and you can glorify him and marvel at him for all of eternity. But the question, I think, for us this morning, the application point for us is, where do you find yourself in that circle, if I can use that phrase? Where do you find yourself? Because that will make a difference as to the outcome, right? Where do you find yourself? 
Are you willing to endure affliction now so that you can be relieved later? Are you willing to put off the glory and the marveling of what people marvel at and glory in here on this earth so that you can glory in Jesus and marvel at him for all eternity? Are you willing to not only know God and admit and confess and acknowledge that he is right, he's the creator of everything, he's perfect and pure in every way, and that I am sinful, that I fall so far short, but thanks be to God, he has offered me this gift, the gospel of Jesus Christ, to receive, to obey, to pay attention to, to listen to, to let that gospel root out and take away those evil, dark things in here, those things that set themselves up against the knowledge of God, to be restored and renewed and refreshed, to become like Jesus. Or do I want to thumb my nose at him now? Do I want to say I want to do what I want to do? Do I want to get as close as I can, but not all in? Because I think that's what that phrase carries, to know and obey you see, the, the, the place many of us might find ourselves, if I, can just be, if I can just be honest about where we find ourselves, in a culture, in a specific local, regional culture that is saturated with the gospel and with churches and having grown up in churches, we often find ourselves between those two words, actually, the knowing and the obeying. The almost in. That will make a difference which side of that line you end up on, the repayment or the relief, right? The away from the presence and glory of God or the participating in glorifying God and marveling at him. The reality is, I was going to say this, the reality is only you can answer that question, but actually, I believe only the Holy Spirit can answer that question. Because even our own hearts deceive us. Even when we are fully sure and confident, we can fool ourselves sometimes. Which means only the Holy Spirit can answer the question. So my invitation is simple. As we pray here, would you just ask the Holy Spirit where he, he says you are at? And take that to be the gospel truth, if I can use that phrase. God, thank you so much for the reality that there is a gospel truth. To know who you are to know how desperately we need to be saved from ourselves, from our sinfulness, from our selfishness, from our own God complex where we want to be like you. To know that you have made a way through Jesus Christ for us to do exactly that. That, that way that he walked, the path that he walked, he humbled himself. He became obedient to you. He emptied himself. He took on the form of human, of human flesh, being found as a human he became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God, we know. Therefore, this is, the, this is the way. This is the path you've laid out for us. Therefore, you have glorified him. Therefore, you've lifted him up and given him the name that is above every name. That at his name, at Jesus' name, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. Thank you that we are aware of that. So this morning, we invite you. We ask you in the Holy, the Holy Spirit. We ask that you would reveal to us where our hearts are at where we are at? Are we obedient to the gospel of Jesus? Have we received it? Has it been implanted? Is it growing and flourishing? Is it holding us steady in the midst of affliction? 
Have we received you, Holy Spirit? That's really the question we're asking. Have we been stamped? Do we have the down payment of you, Holy Spirit? I pray this morning that it may be so. I pray this morning, God, that if, if any of us are hearing or sensing an answer that is not what we want to hear, that's not what it should be, that this morning would again would be the morning you've given to us on this cold, blustery January morning where it's cold to go outside, it's hard to go outside, that you have granted us the grace in which we stand to be here to say, today is the day of salvation. Today I can open my heart and my mind to you and allow you to, be, to come in completely. And maybe if nothing else, God, if nothing else, we don't want to be casual about it. We don't want to even, we don't want to just even have an insurance policy about it. But if nothing else, if we are unsure or if we are feeling like, like, like maybe we're not where we, th- we think we are, then if nothing else, then now is the moment for us to say, Lord Jesus, it doesn't matter because I again, whether I've received the gospel or not, I again humble myself before you. I yield myself before you. I lay myself down before you. I offer myself to you as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to you, for this is my act of spiritual worship so that I am right with you, that I am used by you, that I am transformed by you, not conformed to this world, but transformed by you, by your Holy Spirit, and know what your will is, your good, perfect, pleasing will is in my life. Thank you. Thank you. God, we give you praise and glory. We want to walk in the truth. We want to follow after our Master Jesus. And we praise you, Jesus. We marvel at you now as much as we can, but we long for the day when we will see you fully with our own eyes and we will know, we will know, we will know, we will know even deeper than we've ever known on this earth. We will know how great a salvation you've won for us to the great depths you went for us, your great love for us. What a masterful champion of salvation you are. What a beautiful leader. What, a, what an amazing savior you are. And we will worship you and marvel at you for all time. And we will do so gladly because you deserve it, God. You deserve it, Jesus. You're worthy of our praise and our adoration. We give it to you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.